another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, it's a fucking legend. From the band The Only Ones, from a, a brand new solo record, Peter Perrette of The Only Ones, and solo record fame, and... Uh, England's glory and more and more and more, but all of that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, email me at turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien, D A M I A N, uh, the, like Twitter, Instagram, all that BS. If you use Facebook, you can find the show over there at facebook.com slash turnedoutapunk. The page is run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the messages to me. When you get the messages to him, if you don't use Facebook, you still want to see some of the cool stuff that gets sent into the show. We have a Tumblr page. It's turnoutapunk.tumblr.com. And if you want to support this show, the best way you can do that is by going over to the iTunes page, writing a review for this, rating it, and subscribing to this podcast, and just telling your friends, tell everyone you know uh, that you're, you know, there's a podcast where people talk about nerdy shit, and you like to listen to it. Be proud of that. Be proud of that. Uh, and uh, uh, this thing would not be possible without the help and the loving support of the fine folks at Vans who have given me a little bit of money to keep this thing going. And uh, so I don't have to pay for it out of my pocket anymore, which is great. And they can uh, they just let me book whoever I want. You know, like last week it was, uh, you know, someone from music. This week it's someone from music. Next week it's someone from something else. You know, they don't care. They're like, just do your podcast. And that's what I've been doing. I think that's it. Do I have anything else to get to? No, no, no. Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show, one of the greatest, one of the greatest British songwriters of all time, in my opinion. Peter Perrette, of course, uh, started in England's Glory, proto-punk band, I guess, for lack of a better term to describe him. Kind of Velvet's Worship, a fantastic band. Definitely look up, them up. Um, and then he went on to do The Only Ones. Only Ones, of course, had a smash hit with Another Girl, Another Planet. But my God, if that's where your knowledge of this guy ends, you've got some deep diving to do. Because he went on to do a lot of other amazing things. Um, we talk about some of that in this podcast today. This is one of my favorite ones I've ever gotten to do for a lot of reasons. Number one, Peter Perrette is someone who a lot of people wrote off. You know, a lot of people said that there was no way he was going to kind of be able to come back from the the ravages of, of drug addiction and all these things. And he did, he has, and he survived and he's I'm amazing for it. You know, like the fact that he's still here and able to do these songs is it's proof that, you know, there's something about the human spirit that when it wants to survive, it does survive. Um, not everyone around him did survive, however. And so um, we talk a little bit about some of those people that passed away and it's amazing. The people that he've kind of, you know, been through, like, you know, you think of this guy, you think of the only ones, you don't think about the fact that, oh yeah, like so alone that Johnny Thunder's record, he played on all that too. Um, anyway, I could go on forever. I got to say though, huge, huge thank you. First of all, to uh, Stephanie Hardman for putting this together. She reached out to Tristan and Tristan reached out to me and then lo and behold, a few weeks later, I'm talking to Peter Perret. Uh, unfortunately, Peter he brings up a Toronto date in this podcast. He will not be coming to North America, it looks like. They had some visa issues, and uh, and sadly, he will not be playing here this time around. But hopefully in the future, because he's got a brand new record on Domino that's fantastic. It is a 
Uh, a real corker of an album, as they like to say. Also, I got to say a huge thank you to Douglas Hart. Yep, that's right, the Douglas Hart. <laughs> um, because uh, the guy from Jesus and Mary Chain helped Peter tech this episode. That's why I love doing this podcast, because always something awesome seems to pop up. Um, and, uh, and I think that's it. Anything else I got to get to? Oh, also, yeah, if you use Spotify... I have put together a playlist of some of the bands that we talk about. I know people have been on me to do this for years, and I'm going to start doing it. I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, starting small. So I did this week's one. I did last week's one. So John Reese, there's a playlist up there for John Reese. And if you look up Turned Out of Punk, and then it's like colon Peter Perrette and colon John Reese. And I, I kind of, you know, save you some of the hard work of going through this episode, picking up some of the names and picking up some songs and just throwing them together. So... It's a, it's a cool little soundtrack to listen to after you're done listening to this episode. I'm not going to blather on anymore because at the end of this, there's a huge announcement too. So everyone, please sit back, relax, and enjoy one of my favorite Turn It Up Punks ever, Peter Perrette on Turn It Up Punk. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Well, as I was just telling you before we had the uh, battle with technology, you are one of the greatest songwriters of all time, in my opinion. And so to get an opportunity to kind of sit down and have this conversation with you, well, I'm beyond chuffed. Thank, thank you for the flattery. I, I've been a great songwriter at brief moments in my life. But, um, <laughs> I've just been a layabout, layabout the rest of the time. But yeah, thank you. Well, if we can all achieve greatness, if but for a moment, I think the world would be a better yeah. place. So to have it a couple times, you know what, that's... Or a few times, I should say, more than a few times. That's uh, that's more than the rest of us could hope to achieve. But I got to start this thing off the way I start them all off, which is, Peter, do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre of punk? Um, well, I met Malcolm McLaren in um, nineteen seventy-three or four, and so I saw it from through his eyes as he was forming the band, the Sex Pistols, and I can't remember. Who, when I first heard the word punk, but, um, you know, it soon became associated with the Sex Pistols and then the Clash and people like that. Um, so it was probably around like 75 when I first saw the Sex Pistols play. So um, when you, when you met Malcolm, was it because of England's glory? Like, was he interested in you guys? No, or? no, we, no, we just went into, um, the shop, which was called, uh, let it rock mm -hmm. when we first went in. Because um, they had stiletto shoes there, and Zena was always on the lookout for any stiletto shoes. And it was like Teddy Boy stuff, and then they changed the name to Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die. And um, then it became Sex, and the Sex Pistols were formed. And, uh, you know, it was, yeah, I don't know what was happening in America at that time. You know, they probably had the beginnings of punk there. I don't, you know. It's various uh, stories about when the word punk was actually coined, but because mm -hmm. um, I think it's a more derogatory term, or it used to be, like your show is called Turned Out a Punk. Yeah, I mean, I think that has different connotations in American prisons, doesn't it? But anyway, <laughs> a little bit um, of a double entendre going on there, um, yeah, or, or a triple yeah, entendre, maybe but, potentially. But it was, you know, it was a great time to be around because uh, it was just a load of kids who who didn't give a fuck and just wanted to rebel against the established order. You know, most of the music scene at that time was very overblown and pompous and self-indulgent. 
um, you know, with lots of prog rock bands, you know, like Pink Floyd, Yes, and people like that. And mm. uh, so it was just um, people wanting to express themselves out of the constraints, outside of the constraints of what was expected by the music business. And, um, you know, to begin with, it was great fun. And, you know, you know the first couple of times I saw the Sex Pistols, it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen on stage. So, <laughs> um, But then pretty soon... When things become popular, they sort of change because then it becomes a broader um, spectrum of people, you know, applying themselves to this little, you know, homegrown sort of um, phenomenon. And um, then people start adopting a uniform, both sartorially and musically. And um, for me, that's then it becomes a bit sort of um, mundane then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And then it, I think like the period you're talking about, like that, that period of like, you know, where it's just forming before the codification, that's when it's the most vibrant. Like that's where you have yeah. a huge range yeah, of bands. People just, felt, people just felt they could do whatever they wanted. And it turned the music business in London, in England, it turned the music business upside down. You know, I think around the world. Around, yeah. Eventually the ripples went around the world to begin with. I think it was just like New York and then, mm-hmm. Tiny, tiny ripples in the bigger cities. Uh, I think it took quite a while to hit middle America, you know. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think there are loads of English bands that when they played Birmingham, Alabama and places like that, <laughs> they, it was hard to find people really appreciating them, you know. Yeah. Like when we played there, we needed a police escort to, to, <laughs> from the gig to the, to the... But, you know, that's, that's part of the fun, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, upsetting people. Well, you because you were, you know, you were playing what I guess in my mind was kind of like, you know, the roots of punk music, proto-punk, uh, before that, obviously with England's glory, how did you grow up like a music fan? Like it, were you, did you grow up in a music household? Uh, no, my parents didn't, you know, no, <laughs> the only music in the household was my music uh, <laughs> that I used to listen to. Um, and it was my escape. You know, I think like most teenagers from those times, music was the only escape you had, you know, there were no computers, video games, any of the modern technology that seemed to take up um, teenagers' time. You know, back then, if you were like 14 or 15 and felt disconnected from the world, music was your escape. So consequently, music meant a lot more to teenagers back then. And um, yeah, so like I got guitar when I was 17, then started playing, writing songs. And so England's Glory was was when I was from like 19, 20 years old. So that, that was the first the first songs I ever wrote, more or less. And, um, you know, they're quite primitive. You know, I even sang in a mid-Atlantic accent because, you know, my heroes were Bob Dylan and the Velvet Underground. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you tend to sound like the stuff you listen to when you first start playing until you have the confidence to actually sing with an English accent and, <laughs> you know, find your own voice. But, um, yeah, so, and... I suppose in some ways it was proto-punk because we, we were very limited. Our skills on our instruments were very limited and that was part of the fun of of punk is people just getting up with something to say and it didn't matter about their musical proficiency, you know, mm-hmm. because that is why music, the prog rock music, had become so boring because people were showing off all the time about you know how well they could play their instruments and that's not what passionate music should be about, you know. I mean, play, being able to play your instruments, you know, shouldn't be a hindrance so long as you, you know, use a little bit of taste with it instead of, um, you know, so, yeah. 
by the by the time punk happened, I'd actually sort of gone through the thing of, of just sort of limited enthusiasm on an instrument, <laughs> and you know, wanted wanted to get musicians who could interpret things a bit more and and have more depth of range in what they were able to play. So in that way, we were sort of at odds with most of the bands that were like four or five years younger. Because like when punk happened, I was like. 23 24 25 and lots of them were like 18 19 where i was when i was in england's glory so um you know we actually had you know another girl another planet had a lead break on it i had lead guitar yeah. which was like um the antichrist yeah to, cardinal to, sin to punk went first. <laughs> yeah do you know what i mean so uh but I, that, you know, I liked that because I was always rebellious. And so as soon as something became a movement, I wanted to rebel against it. So it just made it very easy to be different and stand out from the crowd. But, you know, we had the same um, passions and ideals and anger, you know, because like, there was a lot of angry young men around. You know, when mm-hmm. when you're young, you tend to be angry about stuff. You know, you, you mellow out as you get older because you realize that um, the best way to change the world is with love obviously you know go back to the hippie ideals but when you're very young you think you can do it by playing as loud and angrily as you possibly can (laughs) just to annoy people but um you know because that's what when punk sort of went through across north america in the 80s and you know a lot of american punk is sort of very bludgeoning Mm -hmm. you know and I, i i appreciate the ideals you know appreciate any politics that people want to sing about but you don't have to bludgeon people into submission. Sometimes a, a little bit of subtlety and nuance can make people think. And if you can make people think, then they might just stumble across the truth. You don't have to ram things down people's throats, you know. Yeah, and I guess, like, you know, and certainly with England's Glory, like, what you're doing is, you know, as you say, proto-punk. There's a, there's a punk ethos there. But once again, there's also, like, a, a melody, because I guess that's coming from that Bob Dylan, Velvet Underground influence you talked about. Yeah, and also, like... You know, because the reasons I like Bob Dylan and you know lyrics were always paramount in my appreciation of of pop music. You know, you know as soon as I heard Bob Dylan, my world changed because I realised that you know what could be done with with the the words accompanied by melody um, made the melody somehow mean a lot more than just something that was a catchy tune. You know, and um, to, to the point where the D is like secondary importance to me, you know, the, the words are everything. Um, well, and I think that's like, you know, and, and that's one of the things that people say about the only ones in your lyrics is that you did have that subtlety. You did have that ability to, to kind of express things, uh, that were much darker, much more sinister than the beautiful music would at first convey. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know. Sometimes, you know, if you if you have uh, things that are melodic, it somehow make wraps things in a nice environment that you can infiltrate people's minds a lot easier. You know, if you you know if you try and make things too scary, then um, you know it's going to scare people away. So, you know, like on the new album, you know how the West was one is like a very jaunty sort of like almost a countryish sort of feel to the title track, which I think is perfect for the, the lyrics of the first first verse, which, you know, says everything I want to say about the modern world. Get out of the way. <laughs> Try not to upset people by 
by couching it in in humor and um because you know it's basically making people laugh you know it's what how trump gets away with what he's doing you know he makes people laugh and it just makes it all so much fun you know um yeah, sorry, I'm starting no, to ramble. No, but was, this is what I was telling you. Because you, you were still in the 70s, sorry. I, no, I believe me, but I, Peter, I, this, is what this, yeah. this is the bread and butter of this show, as I told you. <laughs> this is what, believe me, if this podcast doesn't have us, uh, you know, uh, rambling off onto different subjects, okay. I fail to do my well, while job. I'm, while I'm in the present, because like, yes. I've, I've got a feeling you want to take me back to the 70s, but while I'm in the present, yeah, please. must mention that I'm coming to Toronto on February the 28th, we'll be playing at the Horseshoe Tavern. Oh, the and legendary I'm really club. excited. Yeah, I'm really excited because like I think the last time was there was like 1979 at the place called The Edge we played. Yes. Um, I have and, a flyer um, for that show, or I've seen a flyer for that show, yeah? I should say. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, I, I've re- you know, I really enjoyed coming to Toronto last time. I hope it's not very <laughs> cold and... I'm probably being a bit ambitious by yeah. by that wish, so it's probably unrealistic. But it might be a little unrealistic. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. I'm warning so you I'm in advance. Bring a layers. jacket. Yeah. Um, bring a layer. Bring yeah. a layer too. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, some hats and yeah. No, it'd be fun. It'd be fun because like, you know, it's a long time, and I, you know, most of my life, I never thought I'd ever get back to North America. Do you mind it being called North America, or do you? These days, we don't want to be included with uh, what's happening. <laughs> it's like a, I think, it's like dissing you, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you know, but it I think, nothing to do with it. Nothing to do. No, but I think like as as is going on a lot of places in this world right now, you know, uh, yeah. there's 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 definitely not the greatest things happening here politically that are able to kind of hide in plain sight because of what's happening yeah. south of the border. So lump us in, lump us in. North yeah. America is fine. We all have to unfortunately okay. wear the okay. scarlet letter. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to coming. So I hope <laughs> quite a lot of your listeners will come and, and see me on February the 28th. Oh, absolutely! So I've got the I've got the plug out of the way. So <laughs> don't worry. Carry well, on. I was going to say I, with your questions. Well, no, and I was going to tell yeah. you, like, I do intros to this thing at the very beginning, and I do an extra at the very end. So I make sure I'll I make sure to talk about the new record and and you know plug the tour and stuff like that. So it's not okay. Don't worry, there will be wraparounds as well. Uh, to give it a little bit of context and, and stuff like that, set you up and okay. don't, not throw the listeners in cold to just you and me talking yeah. out of the blue. Um, but yeah. I did, I did kind of want to take you back to, as you said, the seventies, because I think that that moment with England's glory to me is that's fascinating. That proto kind of punk era where you have bands like, you know, the Groundhogs happening, you have uh, the Pink Fairies happening. You've got like a lot of that stuff kind of coming to an end. And then you have the, the, the next scene starting. You have, like, Dr. Feelgood and all this stuff, and then you have yeah. what would wind up being punk. So where did you guys kind of fit in? Because sonically, you know, where did that sit with those various well, bands? Well, we were in our own little bubble, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, basically it was just, like, friends. And it was proto-punk in the way we actually made our own record, you know. Yeah. Uh, which you know that everybody did in like 1976. The punk scene was all people putting things out on their own labels, which was great fun because it took the the record companies out of the equation, you know, and made mm-hmm. them followers rather than leaders. But um, yeah, so we went, just went into a studio in December 1971, um, played the ten tracks one after the other. So it was like it cost fifty pounds to do the album. <laughs> we did it in five. five five hours to record the backing tracks because it was like two t- 
two track reboxes and then um, another five hours to do the vocals over the top and I think we put a keyboard on or something. Um, and yes, yeah, so that was fifty pounds, and then it cost a hundred pounds to get twenty-five copies made. So we had twenty-five vinyl copies of, of it, which was obviously for us and our friends, you know. So like we we existed in a bubble that was totally disc. You know, we weren't. No one in the music business knew that we were around. Uh, we did a gig where we had like two hundred friends turn up to. <laughs> it was like very, very much like school kids. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was like a school band, and um, so it was like you know it was proto punk because that's how punk started. Mm-hmm. Except the difference with punk is that lots of bands were like playing their, you know, picking up an instrument, playing a gig a week later, and then being on the front page of a music weekly the next week. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was. Um, but no, we were totally underneath the radar. So um, I mean, we had no, I had no great amb- ambitions. I, I started writing songs because I had to. You know, I mean, uh, it was once I looked, had a guitar and I started playing chords. You know, songs just, you know, I couldn't stop writing songs, and um, it's just something that gave me pleasure. And it's the only reason that I've ever done it is for pleasure because, um, you know, it's like. The, the the healthiest pleasure that I've ever had. So um, I think uh, it's something that I'm going to cling on to for the re- for the rest of my days. I hope. Well, and it's and I think even those songs back then, it's clear that you know you have that gift for songwriting, even as like a, you know a teenager. Um, was there like any sort of reception for the record? Because there's that famous story about Nick Kent thinking it was Velvet Underground yeah. demos. Yeah, well, he was told that by... Uh, what happened is, like, because when we made the record, uh, you know, I thought, wow, you know, this is great. We've made a record. You know, it's a real <laughs> record. It's, and it sounds like real music. So Xena being, like... Because I, I would have never have played it to anyone or gone gone out of the house with it or anything. But Xena actually went to some record companies and, like, lots of the people in those days the record companies they'd play the first five seconds of track one the first five seconds of tra- do you know what i mean they, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they just make you feel like shit you know and i i sort of after xena went through all this you know i said you know never going to put us through that ever again um but one of the people i mean there's one person that says oh you know this sounds a bit like lou reed there's not even enough room in the for one Lou Reed in the music business, let alone <laughs> Charlie, because that was back when Lou Reed, you know, when they, Velvet Underground were a real cult band. Yeah, you know before I mean? the rediscovery. Yeah. It, it was before, yeah, it was before Walk on the Wild Side and stuff. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so, but there was this one person who happened to be, he wasn't in the A&R department, so he couldn't do anything for us, but he was like in the press department at EMI Records, who actually really liked it. And, um, and so, you know, we left a copy with him and he fooled Nick Kent. Nick Kent, you know, being in the press department, he had interactions with Nick Kent and told him it was a very early um, Lou Reed Velvet Underground demo. And, like, you know, he had him going. He, he thought, yeah, it could be. But years later, he recognized one of the songs. And he said, yeah, well, that, you know, so, yeah. What, was your yeah. original hope just to play, you know, a couple shows, make this document of it? Or did you have sort of greater ambitions for for the band well for England's glory yeah um i didn't you know i mean i didn't you know i had no idea how about the you know the way the music i was just a kid yeah who just enjoyed listening to music and playing music mm-hmm. and um 
you know, when, you know, Zena got that reaction, I didn't want anything to do with the music business. I thought it was really horrible. Yeah. You know, I probably, it, you know we got a gig together because it was fun to play to our friends. But, you know, I never really, you know, I just carried on doing things for my own amusement, like doing demos every year just to, you know, because I wrote songs and I like to record them and hear them back for my own pleasure. You're and it was like one of those demos, um, I got John Perry, he played um, bass on them and um, he said, look, you know, we ought to form a band, you know, because the England Scory is like broken up by 73 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so in 75, John Perry said, look, we ought to form a band, you know, and once I had someone else sort of egg it, because, you know, I I am quite a lazy person. I tend to (laughs) procrastinate a lot. And... um, you know, I'm great at writing songs, but actually doing things, you know, <laughs> especially things that aren't fun, you know, like yeah. uh, to me, you know, partying, you know, girls, things like that. That was all the things I enjoyed doing as well as playing music. But <laughs> actually actually being serious about life and, and being career minded is something that, you know, still like, you know, I'm making this phone call to you now, which is like me being my most together. Do you know what I mean? As yeah. far as doing things which benefit my career because um, I tended to, you know, not adhere to the, the rules of, of, you know, what you do if you want to build a career. Mm-hmm. Like disappearing for, for like decades at a time is not the way to build a career. But, um, you know, that's just me, you know, like I've taken, you know, I take the good bits with the bad bits and, um, you know, I'm, I'm still relatively sane so that, you know, can't be all bad. No, certainly not. Like if if you've gotten this far, you know, and and yeah, and yeah. It's, it's not. No, I mean, just just surviving is yeah. like such an achievement, you know, because like there's so many people I know that, you know, aren't around. So, you know, to still be around in these days, you know, to have survived everything is, um, you know, I'm proud of myself. You know, no, absolutely, um, absolutely. <laughs> to come back, what you came back from, you know, like that's. You should, like, yeah, yeah. you should be so proud to, you know, able to do this and once again come back to Toronto as cold as it is, as it is here and, uh, <laughs> you know, get to give your music to us here. It's like, man, I'm, I'm proud. <laughs> I'm really happy that you're yeah. able to do this. Uh, so were, where did you kind of hear about the Velvet Underground? Because you had mentioned they were a cult band back then. So where did you kind of first yeah. become interested with them? Um. Like I saw the cover, like in, a, in an import shop, mm-hmm. um, and on the cover it said like a cross between Bob Dylan and Marquis de Sade. <laughs> so like that, you know, there's like a little write up on yeah. the, the the original, you know, the first album. This yeah. is like '67 or something, and like the fa- fact you mentioned Bob Dylan, you know, obviously, you know, Bob Dylan was my all time hero. Uh, I mean, Bob Dylan in 1966 with the band is the ultimate. Yeah, it's the one thing I regret is I never saw them in 66, but, uh, you know, the ultimate live experience that would yeah. have been. Um, so, yeah, so I was intrigued by that, seeing the cover in, a, in an import record shop. And then when I got I got expelled from my first school, and the new school I went to, there was this guy there that, I don't know if he was rich, but he had all the, the latest records and um, so I asked to borrow it, and he said, you can have it, because, like, he didn't like it that much. <laughs> and, um, you, know, it's, you know, as soon as I heard it, just the sound, you know, I mean, 
you know, the fact that the lyrics were good and interesting, but just the whole sound, it just sounded completely different to everything. You know, mm-hmm. at that time I was into the Pink Floyd, the first Pink Floyd album, um, as far as live bands and, and psychedelic bands, what was happening in 67 is all about psychedelia. Mm-hmm. And um, this was like off on a completely different tangent. You know, to me, it was like psychedelic in a way because there was sort of all sorts of weird noises, but the noises were sort of much darker noises, you know, rather than just lots of reverb and lots of spacey sounds, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whereas I could see Pink Floyd live, I saw Pink Floyd live a lot with Sid Barrett. Oh, you did you um, watch the UFO nights and stuff? like um, Middle Earth, you know, because um, that, that was the other club. There was UFO yeah. and Middle Earth. Oh, that's uh, yeah, amazing. No, it, yeah. And um, the Alexandra Palace and places yeah. like that. Um, yeah, I mean, for, you know, I was like 15 at the time, which is like quite an experience, you know, because it was an assault on, on the senses totally, mm-hmm. you know, from the the light shows, the sound, the smell, the incense, you know, just everything, you know, me and my caftan and bell, you know, <laughs> trying to be, a, you know, sort of a hippie when I was just like a little kid. But, um, yeah, so, but, you know, I never, obviously never saw the underground because they never toured England at all, you know, they just played in America. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't. The Velvet Underground. Well, after Lou Reed left them, he yeah. So the Velvet Underground came over without um, Lou Reed. But you know, I went and saw them just because they were called the Velvet Underground, and it was like Doug Yule and yeah. uh, you know, you know that lineup that did an album after he left. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he didn't come over till '72, and I saw him come over. You know, when he came over with the Tots, and um, got to spend some time with them a bit and because we got to know the tots a bit because uh, you know they just saw us at the gigs and uh yeah that's spent awesome some time with them what was he what was he like that back then like obviously much younger but like what was he what did he treat you guys as just like a bunch of young kids well he he came and sat next to me for like half an hour you know because it is we used to go back to the the flat they had like a, a holiday flat and um, like give me an opportunity to speak to him I was too shy to to say anything at all yeah because like he was you know after Bob Dylan it was probably the person I I was more worried about making a fool of myself in front of than anybody else in the world (laughs) Um, but he spent a lot of time talking to Zena you know Mm. um, uh, begging her to let him eat her which she didn't understand it was an American expression um so like she offered him her arm, you know, because she's she was although she looked a certain way, in her head she was quite naive. You know? Yeah. Um so Bee was a perfect gentleman and uh yeah, no, I mean I've heard lots of horror stories about the way he treats some journalists and, and things like that. But when we met him he, he was, you know he, you know, he didn't it, it was a, a pleasure meeting and spending time in his in his company, you know. Because um, that's the one thing I've never wanted to meet Bob Dylan, just in case he turned out to be not like a god. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. if you like someone's music a lot, you're always scared about spending, you know, meeting the real them. Getting behind the curtain. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it can yeah. taint, taint the, your appreciation of the music, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so that's why, like, when I do gigs, I try not to say too much on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't want to spoil it, you know, because it's best to remain mysterious and enigmatic because uh, once I start talking, I, 
I, I, yeah, there's the danger of upsetting people if they disagree with your views about stuff, you know. Well, I'm very much in agreement with everything you're saying so far here, Peter, so don't <laughs> worry. Um, nothing to fear here. Um, uh, but I, also, were you a fan, and did you get to see that first uh, New York Dolls show? Because I know, obviously, you later on would play with Johnny Thunders, but w- did you were you at that first tour they did over there? I, t- I wasn't interested in the New York Dolls at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Zena's little sisters had, you know, bought, like... Um, yeah, they were big fans of David Bowie, T-Rex, and they had the the New York Dolls first album because basically they like they were into glam. You know, yeah. they were like twelve, thirteen years old, teeny boppers they used to call them at the time. You know, mm-hmm. and um, so I'd seen the New York Dolls album and I I, I was intrigued by the cover. I liked the cover because you know it was quite sort of different. Definitely, and, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, I used to wear lots of eyeliner, so I felt like kindred spirits in a way. Although they took it to a different level, to mm-hmm. the, you know, like uh, you know, I, I didn't, yeah. Anyway, but um, so I didn't really listen to it that much. I listened to it a bit, and you know, thought, you know, my sort of um, initial impression was, um, you know, a little bit like Stonesy. Yeah, but much looser and um yeah so you know um, i was a bit of a heathen as far as you know their their um place in the importance of, of rock history mm-hmm. um obviously since then you know i've realized you know that we the the sort of path that that followed from them through punk and everything you know and lots of of um punk icons, you know, the New York Dolls were their heroes, you mm-hmm. know, like when when Sid Vicious played with me and Johnny, Sid Vicious, you know, Johnny was Sid Vicious' his hero, do you know what I mean? He looked up to him, you know, lots of them looked up to Johnny. Um, yeah, so I didn't, you know, I didn't really, I'd heard of the New York Dolls, but I'd never really listened to their stuff. You know, probably if I'd listened to it, I'd have discovered what everybody else liked about them, but... Um, or didn't like about them because <laughs> yeah. there's lots of people, lots of people that yeah. But with lots of good music, people hate it to begin with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. That's, that's just the way the way things are. Um, but yeah, no. So I didn't really. It was only like I think the second gig that the only ones did, like January '77. Um, Johnny Johnny Thunders came had come to the gig at the Speakeasy, which was like the best best club in London at the time because um, it was a club where you know, the old guard went and, the you know, because it had been in the 60s, you know, everybody had, you know, Hendrix had jammed there, you know, everybody mm-hmm. used to go there. And so you got the old older musicians and the young punk musicians mixing. And it was just a fun place, for, you know, fun club to, to go to, which, you know, nowadays, you know, you have to be members of, well, you have to be a member, but, you know, if you, you know, everybody got in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so after the, we'd played there, um, Johnny came up to me and he introduced himself and said, "Hello, my name's Johnny Thunders. I love your voice, and you know, I'm, you know, I'm very easy. Do you know what I mean? If someone yeah. flatters me, if someone <laughs> comes up to me and says, I love your voice,' immediately, you know, we were best friends. You know, <laughs> so and you know, he, then he asked me to play with him, and you know, it, you know, it was like a, you know, a year and a half of being really close. You know." A, after that, once we became, once the only ones became busier, um, didn't see as much of, of each other. You know, last time I played with him, 
Um, and I played with him in, in New York in 1980 at Max's. And then that was the last time I did a proper set. And I just did a guest appearance with him in 83. But then, you know, I never played with him after 83. You know, he'd come around the house occasionally and try and see me. But I was sort of incommunicado at the time. I was sort of, um, you know, I was a bit of a hermit, mm-hmm. you know, through that decade. And, but, yeah, so sorry. <laughs> no, no, please don't worry. No, not at all. Like, I think, uh, because that's like obviously there's that one set that's been reissued. I think it's from the Speakeasy too, like a '78 show. There's a, a double okay, CD yeah, yeah, that, that came in Japan. That probably was like, yeah, the, I think it was like, um, yeah, it might have been the first first gig. Yeah, it was. It was the first gig that we played together uh, at the Speakeasy. Yeah, I think it was probably February '78. It was out of those. We did a few gigs at the Speakeasy, and it was out of those that So Alone happened. Um, uh, the guy from the record, from Real Records, a guy called Dave Hill, yeah, came to a, a lot of those shows, and um, that's when he approached Johnny and me because like, he wanted Johnny to do a solo album, but he wanted to make sure that I was involved <laughs> yeah. because for some reason he thought I was like a, a good influence and it was likely to be more together, you know, which mm. you know is <laughs> a compliment, I suppose. So, so the solo album happened out of those series of gigs at the Speakeasy, and um, and then we played the Lyceum to promote it. I think uh, sometime like October '78. Um, so I guess before that happened, like how did that transition start? Where you know you've you've been doing these demos. Actually, before there's so much I want to talk to you about, Peter. I apologize if I'm scattered. Uh, That's all right. What were those demos like that you mentioned earlier? That you were you you said you were recording demos every year after England's Glory kind of yeah. finished. What were what were the style of those demos? Was it kind of continuing the same sort of style. Well, some of them, some of them came out on an album called Remains, which was literally what it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like the only ones, you know, we just did three albums and then broke up after three or four years. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, after a very chaotic. Um, American tour, which you know, there's lots of bands. The pressures of being on the road with each other, and you know, crazy stuff happening. You know, uh, anyway. So, but yeah, we broke up. But then three years later, a French company put out an album called Remains, which were basically um, a couple of things from radio sh- live radio shows that would be done but lots of pre-only ones demos as well. So okay. there's quite a few tracks on that. I've got that record actually, um, so I can go back and check those out now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so how did that, uh, you know, you, you know, you get decide to put a band together. What was that process like of getting the only ones together? Um, I don't know. Just, um, well, John, you know, decided to get the band together with John. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, we just tried out, you know, met different. We we tended to it tended to be focused around a, um, a rehearsal studio called Manos, which was in the Kings Road, uh, about a few hundred yards down from Vivian and Malcolm's shop, because you know back then the Kings Road was still a cool place to you know <laughs> people. You know now it's like you know all rich people. You know, everyone's moved from the West End to the East to End. To the East you know. End, yeah. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Because you know what happens, you know, yep. artists 
make a, make a place popular and then the rich people come and throw them out, you know. Oh, no, artists but, are like um, the lichen of gentrification. Like the artists will yeah, be yeah. and then the coffee shops and then yeah. the uh, the gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gentrification is one of the ugliest words of my lifetime, I think. <laughs> it just represents everything about neoliberal capitalism that anyway, I know I'll stop talking about, about politics. You have nothing to worry about. This is a safe <laughs> space to talk about that stuff. Trust me. Trust no, I've me, got Peter. Very extreme, I've got very extreme views, you know, about certain things. And I, I do upset people, especially that side of the, the Atlantic, you know, mm-hmm. because, um, they tend to think that, uh, they've got they, lots of lots in America. They lots of people under the misapprehension that they live in a democracy. You know they don't realize it's a two-party um, dictatorship. You yeah. know and there's no difference. You know, the only difference between the, Dem- the Democrats are sort of you know more presentable and you know more sort of um, viewer friendly. You know they're better actors, but they're still puppets of the same regime. You know and. Yeah, no, it's boring. Politics is boring because there's nothing you can do about it. It's beyond our control. Oh, definitely. You know, I agree with you on just, that. <laughs> it's, it's just best to laugh at it all and um, care about what really matters, which is, you know, your loved ones, your family, and uh, your good health and music, you know. And so, in, in this case, was, the only ones, too, and, and your music, <laughs> too, because... Oh, we, right, right, we that to, sorry, we, yeah, No, no, sorry, no, but I'm saying so we, we need that to yeah, escape. No, we I, need, got, I, told, I, will, I did warn you that I would ramble. Yeah, but don't worry, no, like, I'm not I, trying I to get, get you... This, I'm not trying I to get you back on track. myself. Oh, no, I don't worry. I distract myself from what I intended to say. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so a rehearsal play, room in the King's Road in Chelsea, and um, so we just used to play with people there, you know, other musicians would come and and eventually through that process, a sort of a organic process of playing with different rhythm sections. Um, Kelly was the first person we found. Who, we, you know, we were playing with another drummer and bass player, and Kelly came from outside into the into the studio and clapped after every song, and then um, you know went up and shook the drummer's hand and said, "Hello, I'm Kelly." You know. You're really privileged to have played with this band, and then he spoke to to me and said, "I'm your drummer," you know. And it was like a that that road to Damascus, you know, moment, you know, <laughs> where you, someone tells you that they your drummer, and you actually believe them, you know. Yeah. And there's a marriage made in heaven, and um, you know, and Kelly had a history. He'd actually played in bands that I'd heard of. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which was like really. Yeah, although you weren't meant to like anything, I didn't really like the bands he played in, but I was really impressed by the fact <laughs> I'd heard of them. Yeah. You know, Spooky Tooth, and you know, he played with Traffic. He played with millions of people, yeah. you know, lots of famous people, and um, yeah. So you know, it made me feel like a real musician. I've got someone who's actually people have heard of before in my band. You know, well, it must I, mean, I didn't really care. I didn't really care, but it was like. Um, I don't know. To some people, I knew it impressed some people, so they, it made me smile about that, you know. Uh, and then eventually, eventually, we found Alan. Like I think it was August, August the thirteenth, nineteen seventy-six. You know, Alan wandered in because he saw some glamorous-looking girls come into our <laughs> our studio, and so that brought him in. You know, not the music, just you know. <laughs> but, you know, once he, you know, he. It's started understanding music, and yeah, so we were four very different characters, but um, we just had a feel for what each other were playing that happened to make sense, you know. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, no, it's, it was a fun, you know, I feel privileged to have, you know, been making music at that time because it was, you know, a great time. You know, it was, I think, you know, it's the time most records have been sold. You know, it was a boom time in the, in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you got to do lots of gigs, lots of, to play to lots of people and um, have lots of fun, you know, and then, and eventually you start having too much of the wrong sort of fun and it all falls apart. But, you know, we enjoyed it while it happened, you know. Yeah. And I think what, what, I guess going back to when, you know, Kelly walked in there and saw you guys playing and, and gave you that vote of confidence, it must've been mm. sort of like the complete counter experience to your earlier experience with the music industry when Xena brought oh, yeah, your demos no, yeah. and got rejected. Like it yeah. must've been like, here's someone who's been there and he's looking at yeah. what I'm doing and being like, you've got a kid. Yeah, no, that that's very observant observation. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's no. Sorry. Yeah, I was just laughing at my stupid combination of two words: observant observation. <laughs> no, really, 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 my mind just disintegrating. You know, <laughs> but, um, I think it sounds str- yeah, no, very no, poetic. <laughs> it just sounds dumb, you know. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think it was the whole preamble of of me trying you know, forlornly to work out how to remember my Skype password <laughs> without, and just like making inane guesses, you know, eventually Zena, you know, cause I'm speaking on Zena's phone now. Yes. So she rescued me, but it, as you know, it took quite a long time of me, Zena and Douglas, like <laughs> the blind leading the blind. So, um, I think all that has sort of numbed my mind a little bit. So that's my only excuse for, for, you know, going off on a tangent, and you know, it was it was a real compliment, um, you know, because I was like a little bit hurt by the fact that the record industry hadn't immediately recognised my genius. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? At mm-hmm. that age, you, you're sort of very arrogant, and you know, you get annoyed that you know when when people don't see things the way you see them, and yeah. you know, which is why when we put out Lovers of Today in in March '77. You know, we called the record label Vengeance because yeah. to me it was like this is my revenge against the horrible music industry that, you know, didn't fucking, you know, think I was the greatest songwriter ever. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, you're right. And when Kelly, who had this whole history of playing with really famous people, when he gave me that vote of confidence, it, you know, it made me definitely walk out on stage, even if we were playing to people who hated us with, you know, just an arrogance and confidence that, Knowing that, yeah, I was right about myself yep. all along. Yep. I am special. Do you know what I mean? Because like everyone likes to think they're special, don't they? And it's nice to walk out on the stage feeling that. Well, and also like you know, sometimes, especially with art, you know, you have to wait till the world catches up to you. Yeah, like, that's true. It's true. Like you know, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. I mean, throughout mm-hmm. the ages, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, Galileo telling people the world was round and stuff. You know, it's like. It's a, it's a badge of honor to be hated, you know. I mean, it's better that reaction than yeah, it's okay. Do you know what I mean? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it, like I think if you get that hatred reaction as opposed to what you're describing, yeah, the, yeah it's okay, or and uh, yeah. you know, that 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 shows that you've you've struck a chord, and you know, that's yeah. all we're trying yeah. to do, right? As <laughs> as creative people. Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah, that's what was so great about the Sex Pistols, like the first gigs in '75, is like. You know, there was like a certain amount of the crowd were just puzzled. You know, are yeah. these people really doing this? 
And then there was other people that there, like at the Chelsea College of Art. There was obviously students that it, you know it was their do, mm-hmm. it was the college do, you know. And they're thinking, you know, for you, in our <laughs> evening, do you know what I mean? So there's like a real antipathy and sort of like a bit of aggression from some of you. And it was great, you know. I mean, that sort of confrontation, you know, breeds a certain energy that um, creates a, a very. Well, I thought it was entertaining, and um, yeah, no. So, it was good. Yeah, it was good times, and so you, you know you got audiences expecting anything. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so there was like the punk circuit, and then later the the college circuit, and um, you know people were open to, like you said, lots of different types of music. For the first couple of years, it was great. You know, after a while, it became identical, mm-hmm. and then moved on to other stuff. You know, like new romantics or whatever. Like you know, in the in the 80s i mean missed a lot of the 80s there were some good things in the 80s but um yeah i also think you guys don't really get the credit you deserve as being one of the first diy bands like you had your own label like you self-released yeah, right? the yeah. first single yeah 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 march 77 we weren't the first people but no but like you're we really were one of, one right of the there. first yeah <clears throat> but it was it was great because like you know you just you printed it made a 12 inch single and like you know it could have been like blank, you know, people would buy things that were 12 inch singles because it was just the, the trendy thing to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Especially if it was on a, a label that no one has ever heard of before. Yeah. Um, it was, it was just like the antithesis of, of, you know, big record company music business. And, you know, it was all do DIY, do it yourself, you know, you know, that's what the audience wanted. And so, you know, it was, it was, it was great, you know, and you know, through that, obviously, that's when we had you know, started getting big record companies approaching us. But you know, well, the, yeah, everything happened really quickly back in those days. You know, and it's like well. you you had like uh, the means of production finally in the hands of the artist for the first time in the music yeah. industry. So yeah, you yeah. guys could build your own careers. You didn't have to rely on that music industry. Yeah, I know. I don't know why. Why did we fall for it? You know, it's crazy. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're. You're correct because it was at that time you could, you know, you could do it, and then there were lots of distribution companies, you know, that you know had distribution to all the indie, indie um, record shops, you know, and there were a lot. I mean, those days there used to be things called record shops that sold vinyl. <laughs> I've and, heard of them, and there was like there was like loads and loads of them, and you know, it was it was great, you know, be, you know, but I don't know why, you know, it was just that that orange cbs label that you know all my bob dylan records all my bob dylan records that had that do you know what i mean and it was just seduced me and i was mm-hmm. like you know working for the man and then you know that was the beginning of the end no i agree it, you know means of production in the hands of the workers that's perfect you know yeah and it's and it's like you can see and that's like the thing when we we're talking about earlier about how this would go around the world and change the world like you know sonically punk would go around the world and change the world but i think the 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 ethos like the idea of people being able to do it themselves in, in entertainment that's the thing that's the thing that punk really gave the world that i think changed the world well that yeah i agree totally that you know that's what made it feel special mm-hmm. it made it feel special you know like you know you weren't puppets you know you were your own masters and uh you know it did it felt even like you know we were like a tiny little speck on the horizon, it felt like we were going conquering the world, you know, because we were doing it ourselves. And, uh, yeah. 
how many, like, you know, obviously this is a long time ago and there's two formats, but approximately, just because I see Lovers of Today, you know, I found that in Canada used at a record store. Like, it shows up everywhere. How many approximately do you think yeah. you pressed and sold? Uh, I think it was 20,000, I wow. think. Wow. <laughs> um, As a self-release. Because yeah, I... Yeah, well, we, we did it, and then it was distributed by this guy. You know, we distributed the first ones. Yeah. And then uh, we got approached by a guy called Miles Copeland, who had, like, his own indie. You know, it, he was, like, someone that knew more about the business than, than all the – he, he – um, his brother was in the police. Um, oh, yeah. Stuart Copeland was <laughs> yeah, the drummer in the police. And he – and he managed the police and yeah. stuff. And he was the person that took all the punk bands to America because his other brother, who was a beautiful guy in Copeland, uh, was the agent in America. And every punk and new wave English band that toured America did it through Ian Copeland. And, you know, he was the best Copeland. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so so this guy, Miles Copeland, um, you know, he asked us if he could di di distribute the the single and that's when we started selling a lot more because he used to go in his car with all the singles in the back and deliver it personally to all the all the shops and um yeah no it was twenty thousand. you know that's i mean i suppose it seems a lot now back then it didn't seem a lot because i you know we, when our first album sold like thirty thousand in the first couple of months you know yeah is for people used to sell more then do you know what i mean like, oh, absolutely. that wasn't that much but you know because like i said you know it was the only escape for teenagers so teenagers actually bought records you know they didn't mm -hmm. get them for free listening on you know on their computers mm -hmm. no, it, it, it sort of meant more the fact that they were saving up money to actually buy them and go home with an artifact you know that you'd look at that cover you'd look at you know everything it meant more, you yeah. know, now, you know, music tends to be so disposable when, you know, people just access it free and it's just a tiny part of their day's entertainment. You know, they're plugged into their phones and uh, I don't know. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> I, it's I, true. I, you yeah. had to sacrifice. I, sometimes I feel, I feel very old, you know, sort of like <laughs> complaining about the way the world has become, you know, like I feel it must be like, you know, my father felt in the sixties, you know, well, um, well, I think yeah. it's always because progress is is pitched to us that it's it's positive, but yeah, not, yeah. not everything. Like you know, like there's this idea that oh, we moved away from these CDs that were, you know, crappy, and then the the CD was a move away from vinyl, which was crappy, and like this thing. But like, <laughs> there's that was art. Like there was a piece of like you had the artifact there. Like you were, you know, like the, that was like you know going back to the means of production. Like that was because these independent labels were able to sell these records themselves, they were able to kind of create self-sustaining independent economies that, yeah. you know, could exist. And also they tended to care, they tended to care about the product from a musical point of view yeah. rather than, you know, cause the first, first time I ever heard the word product is when we came to America and the guy from CBS was talking about products, you know, <laughs> and, you know, guys, you know, we're, we're quite different from each other. You know? I've always <laughs> talked about it as music, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the terrifying realization, I guess, sets in at that point, like, uh Oh, these people yeah, are yeah, not yeah. cool. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Where, uh, when you, like you, you're kind of, you know, and I think this is also like, you know, you said 20,000 is not a lot of records, but you're a brand new band self-releasing a record. And for like, you know, for a band to do that now, like it, that's kind of unheard of. Like it just was such an amazing time for just cool that's stuff. That's why happened. I said uh, earlier, 
that's why I said I feel privileged to have been doing what I was doing back then. You know, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. for young bands now starting out, it must be heartbreaking. You know, trying to find an audience, trying to you know, it, it must be heartbreaking because there's so much. Everyone plays guitar now. Yep. Everyone, well, everyone makes music. So like, it's almost like the artists. There's there's more people making music than there are buying music. It, mm -hmm. It's uh, and ever decreasing, I don't know, I, I like to be positive, so I think there's going to be a new revolution and people are going to want to experience live music again and, you know, rather than DJs. I mean, I've got nothing against DJs, but, you know, why would anyone pay lots of money to go and see someone play records? Yeah, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's something about the live experience of seeing that people actually playing their instruments live that I think I find that stimulating rather mm -hmm. than people just, you know, waving their arms in the air, you know, playing decks or playing, you know, computers or something, whatever they do. I, I um, think, and that live experience really comes about when you're, you know, the scene you're talking about, like obviously there've been live concerts forever, but like the idea that like young people could start a band, put on a concert and strangers would show up, not just their yeah, friends like yeah. from school that you, like you did with England's glory, but like strangers yeah, yeah. and they would get into what they're doing. Like that to me is that's birthed in that era. Um, you know, and especially like I said, you know, you could, you know, we didn't have to go anywhere near record companies. You know, we yeah. put out Lovers of Today. Uh, we sent a copy. There was like, it used to be four um, weekly music papers, uh, the NME, Melody Maker, Sounds and Record Mirror. Mm -hmm. And we sent it to all four. And that week it was record single of the week in all four. And the next gig we played, we were playing a shitty little pub called the I think it was the Dublin Castle or, or one of the Rochester or one of those little pubs in, you know, near Camden mm -hmm. uh, in London. And, um, you know, this is what we turned up. There's a great big queue outside and halfway down the queue was Seymour Stein. who was like head of Sire <laughs> yep. Records. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the difference that it made, you know, and you had access to that as a new band who'd like done their first gig three months ago, you know, recorded a, a, a single themselves. And, um, you know that that was great because you mm -hmm. had, you know, you had like you said access to strangers. You know, well, that's you know, a dream band to have. You know, like that you yeah, you yeah. put out the record, people get it, yeah. and and you're like, oh, we're set. We're fine now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was, that's why I said earlier things happened very quickly, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it was you know. Prior to who, what it's, kind of bands know, were you guys playing with? Like who, like in the, even before, like you know the the popularity explosion of Lovers of Today. Like who were the were there like local bands that you kind of fell into a scene with or? Uh, no, because we just started. We played um, the first two gigs we did. We played play a pub called the Greyhound in Fulham and the Speakeasy, and then we we were offered residences at both places. Um, so, like, to begin with, like, the speakeasy, we, there wasn't, like, any other band. You just do mm -hmm. three sets. Mm -hmm. You know, you do a set at nine, a set at midnight, a set at three in the, two or three in the morning, something like that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, once we started doing slightly bigger gigs, you know, we had other bands um, support us, you know, Lur the Lurkers. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't remember the name. But then once we did... Big, real big gigs. Then we had people like um, Psychedelic First support us, um, Simple Minds supported us, U2 supported us in in <laughs> in, in, um, in Ireland in Cork. You know, um, that's when we were sort of playing three thousand seat, you know, three thousand people and stuff yeah. like that. 
when when you first were starting playing, like you know the but the era of the Lurkers, were there other bands that you were kind of like, you know, you're like, oh, that's I like this band more than the others. Like this is the, one of the bands that's speaking to well, me that were happening at the same time. Well, yeah, obviously the you know the first the, you know the second gig we ever did, the first one of the speakers, that's when Johnny came up. So obviously yeah. I was I was aware of the Heartbreakers because we spent a lot of time together. Uh, actually, one of the next gigs we did was supporting the Heartbreakers at the Marquee. Um, because um, you know Johnny and and I sort of we had lots of things in common. We liked you know we had similar musical taste, uh, similar fashion sense. We liked similar type of clothes, and you know recreational things. And um, so we spent during that time, like seventy seven, we spent quite a lot of time together because he, he was in London most of the time. Mm-hmm. And um, he asked if we could support them uh, at the marquee and you know it caused a bit of an argument between him and jerry because they'd already told susie and the banshees that they could support and you know so <laughs> but yeah so yeah i probably saw out of all the bands you know i saw the sex pistols you know very early on yeah but then they broke broke up pretty quickly i saw the clash like twice because they hired our pa january the first 77 uh, when they played um, the Roxy, so I saw them at the, that gig and thought they were rubbish. Then I saw them a couple of, couple of years later at the Palladium in New York and thought, "Wow, they're a really great band now." Do you know yeah, what I mean? So, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So, but probably I saw the Heartbreakers most because you know, just because we were friends, mm-hmm. and they were probably the most exciting live band on that scene at the time because. They could play better, you know. They weren't just, you know, Johnny was my age, and you know they'd been playing a bit. It was a super group. I mean, it's, in, it's, it's like a who's who well, well, of New York punk. Uh, that is like they, okay, the heartbreakers. Okay, okay. okay. Um, yeah, well, it was Johnny and Jerry. I yeah. mean, originally they Richard, I mean, you know, yeah, because yeah, Richard had left, so it was Walter and, and Billy were in it mm-hmm. when they were playing in London, playing in England, but. Um, yeah, so they were probably the as a live band. I mean, you know, I'm not saying their record was better than than all the others, but as a live band, um, they were definitely the you know most fun, most exciting to watch. You know, in '77. You know, when like how did that? What was the writing process like for So Alone? Um, like, were you guys? Did he have those songs already, or you guys kind of like? Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't have anything to do with the writing at all. You know. Um, he just, you know, said, you know, the, the heartbreakers had bro- broken up and, you know, would I help him get a band together? And that's how we started doing the gigs at, at the speakeasy out of that. We got asked to do so alone and, um, you know, we'd already played some of those songs, you know, especially the covers, you know, the, you know, give him a great big kiss pipeline, all those things had been part of the set at the speakeasy. And I think a couple of the original songs as well. I'm not sure if we'd done Memory by then or not. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, th- I suppose we must have done because we didn't rehearse much before. Yeah, we must have, must have already known those from the the live set. And um, yeah, I mean, only half of the songs, like there was five or six originals, weren't there? And the rest were covers. Covers, yeah. Like Daddy Riley said. So I only played on the original songs because um, we had... Um, I can't remember whether it was we were going out on tour or we were in the studio ourselves, but um, I could only do the first week, 
And so for the first week, that's when we did all the original stuff. Because to me, you know, uh, all the stuff that I had liked when I was a kid was, you know, Bob Dylan's original stuff. You know, the, you know, I didn't really, you know, I liked the Birds covers, but I preferred Bob Dylan's versions. And so I wasn't really that enthused about recording old side. It was just the way I was, you know, I was very sort of narrow-minded. I mean, now I love hearing people's interpretations of other other people's songs, you know. It's, it's music, it, you know, it can be great. Mm-hmm. But I used to I used to be very, um, what's the point? And, you know, the, the original's always going to be better. You know, that's the way I used to think. So, yeah, so I just, you know, we just got the first, all the original songs, you know, Memory, um, She's an Untouchable, um, ask me no question. You know, the five, I think there was like six that came out that we recorded to, uh, to begin with. I think they left so alone in the title track off the original release, but eventually everything came out. You know, I think because those... so alone because the title track, title track was my favorite track, and it got left off. You know, yeah. But anyway, what a great selection yeah. of songs too. Like what a what an unbelievable kind of like the originals on that record. Now, I'm right with you with the covers too. Like I've always been a fan of wanting to hear like an artist's like voice come across on an original song much more than hearing their interpretation of someone else's voice um, well so that's that's the way i feel but i mean mm-hmm. i sometimes i think i'm narrow-minded because you know like other people like, i don't know it's i'm just... with you i oh, know i definitely agree with you on that one because <laughs> i think and i think that's you know what a great record to to have this kind of conversation bore out by but like so alone like the songs he wrote on it are awesome and it's like what would it be if there were six more originals on that thing yeah 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 no, definitely. I, you know, yeah, you know, I'm really proud of the, of the album because I think it's some of the best stuff that that Johnny did. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I mean, I I wish I'd been together for longer. You know, because in the '80s, like I said, I was absent without leave most of the '80s. And uh, you know, we could have. I'm sure if I'd have been together, we'd have done a lot more great stuff together. But mm-hmm. no, I'm I'm proud. I'm proud of what I did on that album. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, yeah, but I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't contribute. He had the songs totally, you know. I mean, you know, all I did was write my gu- rhythm guitar parts. You know what I mean? Like the intro to to memory and stuff like that, and the backing vocals. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote the backing vocal parts, but that's not really writing them. That's just joining in and trying <laughs> to sing in tune. Do you know what I mean? It could ruin the song so, though if you didn't do a good enough job. So you definitely wrote something yeah, to, yeah, to make those yeah. songs still good. <laughs> uh, where did? Uh, like, uh, there's the other thing that I really wanted to ask you about, like, honestly, I've kept you for so long and I really appreciate this. And like, I would love to do a part two with you one day down the road sometime because I could talk to you forever, Peter. And there's stuff I didn't even get to brush, but I, I gotta, I'm sure let you go and get on with the rest of your evening. Um, but before I do, I wanted to ask you about the weirdest record I think that came out in sort of the only one's discography, which is the split with sham 69. What's that? There's a split seven inch in New Zealand. There's a split seven inch of the only ones in Sham sixty nine. That's like an official release. Like it must be a record label thing. I would imagine then, right? On what label was that? Was that on like some New Zealand label? It's like limited to two hundred copies. It's a very expensive, sought after. You know when it came? Did did it come out at the time or not? Eighty. It came out in nineteen eighty or eighty one, maybe nineteen eighty. Yeah, but 81. at the time. And what like, track was it? What was it? Planet was it? Or yeah, it's Planet. It's two songs. Track? It's two songs on it. It's Planet and oh god, I'm blanking on what's the other ones. But and it's like and it's like Hersham Boys 
from Sham 69 and, and another <laughs> song too. It's like, but it's like at the time. Were they, I can't remember. Were they, was Sham 69 on CBS? I can't remember. Or was it like. They were on Polydor, sublet? but maybe they were on CBS before oh. that. That would make sense then. No, they were on Polydor, definitely. Okay, so maybe maybe through the, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, can't, I can't answer that. Because like in the, was it, uh, let me think, early 90s, it, a planet came out with Pretty in Pink, the psychedelic furs on yeah. the other side. Yeah. Um, so, but that made more sense because they were actually on CBS, yeah. CBS Sony. So it was on the same label. That sort of thing record labels do, do you know what I mean? It was to promote, it was like the single from a compilation album. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they, those were the two tracks they took off the album. So it was basically to promote a compilation album. Yeah, this so is really weird. It's got artwork for it too. Like it looks like everything it, it, in its official release, it came out on XFS records. And, uh, but, but it's just like, one of the weirdest things I was always wondering if there was like a secret <laughs> only one Champ sixty nine tour planned in New Zealand that never came to be or something. No, 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 not at all. I mean, it's very, uh, yeah, it's a weird combination, definitely. <laughs> I think with the other other end of the spectrum, I think, but you know, someone obviously thought it's a good idea. But what a great genre that it could produce two bands that could both be you know put under the word punk that sound yeah, so uh, sonically diverse. Yeah, no, I think you know. Variety is the spice of life, and and I think, you know, like labels, you know, the the greater the spectrum of, you know, musical differences within that label, the greater the label. I think, you know, if you label things like, you know, there's certain types of jazz that have to be done exactly a certain way, you know, it becomes too like, you know, music by numbers, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, people should be open to. No, I mean, because people are, you know, on, like, on social media, I've seen people arguing about what defines punk. You know, that's not punk, this, do you know what I mean? It's, it was a feeling. It wasn't like a, a straitjacket. That was the whole point of it, not being a straitjacket, not, you know, conforming to certain parameters. It was all about, you know, freedom of expression and just, you know, a feeling of liberation, you know. And uh, I think people, some people, you know, misunderstood that, you know especially the people that argue about what qualifies as punk or not. You know, it's just um, an attitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, Peter, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this today um, and battling with technology to make this happen because <laughs> I really, really, uh, I'm going to cherish the chance to, that I had the chance to kind of punish you about all this stuff. Okay. Well, you know, hopefully, you know, you come and say hello, uh, you know, when we make it to Toronto. I will. Yeah? I will definitely. Yeah. I love okay. the horseshoe. One of the best sound systems in all of Toronto. Uh, nicer oh, club than the edge. Really? Nicer oh, okay. club than the edge. Uh, do you know? Okay, great. Do you know what the monitors are like? Do you know how many different monitor mixes there are? Sorry, sorry about <laughs> this. I shouldn't be asking. No, do you I've, know things like that. I no, my my band has played there. God, I think uh, at least a half a dozen times over the years, and and they have a very competent kind of sound set up. And I saw the Rolling Stones play there. Right. Okay. The Rolling so Stones did a surprise gig there. I think there's four. Uh, they've wedged up front, but I don't know how many different monitor mixes they can do. Um, I'm unfortunately okay. a lead singer who no one has ever come up to me, let alone Johnny Thunders, and told me that they love my voice. So I don't. <laughs> <laughs> when I go up, it's more of a a, a sonic assault. The bludgeoning. A vocal approach that you okay. mentioned earlier—that's more right, where right, I'm coming right. from. Well, that's that gets you through the, you know, for the first few years, doesn't it? Because like it's just so much fun to do that to people. Absolutely, it? and but... it, it, somehow it got me to 15 years later and still being in a band. 
So I don't know okay. how that happened, but, uh, <laughs> but I can't, once again, thank you enough for this time. Thank you. Okay. All right. See you soon. Thank you, Peter, for coming on the show. And you can hear right there, Peter's going to be back for a part two at some point in the near future. Hopefully I'll be able to see him play at some point in the near future because, as I said, one of the greatest English songwriters of all time, in my opinion. And if you don't agree, I challenge you to go through those Four Only Ones records, go through that England's Glory stuff, go through his solo stuff, you know, do a deep dive on those lyrics. I think you'll agree too. And I think you'll agree with me that I also owe a huge thank you to Stephanie Hardman and, of course, Tristan Abraham for helping me put this together. Thank you both so much because, as I said off the top, this is one of my favorites of all time. Speaking of favorites, next week on the show might very well be my favorite episode of all time. Next week on the show, Jack Black is on. Now, Jack is someone that you probably know from TV, movies, comedies, music, Tenacious D, uh, voices in cartoons. He's Kung Fu Panda, for Christ's sake. He's, he's been around this Hollywood scene. And years ago, I got to tour with his band, Tenacious D, in Australia with Fucked Up, my band. And on that tour... You know, I, of course, like I ask everyone, I asked him if he was ever into punk, and he's like, no, not not at all, really. I was a metal guy. But then on that tour, we ran into Off, and this is before Jack Black had directed any of those Off videos, and Keith Morris was like, I remember you, Jack, from back in the day in Orange County running up and down the boardwalk. And so I asked Jack about that afterwards. I'm like, well, if he remembers you, did you ever go to those Circle Jerk shows? He's like, well, no, 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 no. And he brushed it off. And then over the years, there's been more evidence that has emerged. It could be a, a clip of him singing a punk song in a student movie. It could be a photograph of visual discrimination playing a show in Reseda and a guy in the mosh pit zoomed in upon and it looks strikingly like Jack Black. There's also references in the movie School of Rock. There's all sorts of stuff that, you know, he's dismissed over the years. But next week on the show, I present all that evidence to him once and for all. And we get to the bottom of whether or not Jack Black was indeed ever into punk. This isn't as serious as I'm saying it is, but it is a fucking awesome, fun episode. There's lots of cool factoids to find out. There's a, yeah, it's a fun one. That is next week on the show. So thank you once again very much to Peter Perrette for coming on the show this week. Next week, it's Jack Black. Also, I will see you on Footnotes. We're going to have a lot to discuss on Footnotes. I believe there's a new Oil and Flowers, which is Buddha Blaze and my weed podcast up in the channel. So there's lots of stuff for you to listen to. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Vans. Thank you for your support. Please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes. And I will see you next week. Thank you. Bye.